All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We are in this series, 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 3 tonight, verses 11 through 18. 11 through 18. Um, as you're making your way there, ooh, put that phone on. Emma, that, that better be the Lord, Emma. Talk about that. Chapter 3, Go ahead and put your phones on silent. Good reminder. Hey, you know what? It's happened to me <laughs> well, at least one or 18 times. And I have learned uh, from after the 18th time to I better check that. So anyway. Hey, as you're making your way there. So I have a, I have a story to share with you. And I will say this story is. embarrassing. I don't enjoy telling this story. You may have heard this story before. Um, I don't mean to repeat stories, but this, the reality is this is what uh, this is what happened, though. So, as a sixth grader, um, I can't even like I can't even walk you through my my mental process in this. Okay, so hear that. The what? Maybe. If there's a point, I just need to turn around and just, like, talk to the wall here. That may be the best option. But, so, man, I don't like this story, and I'm resistant to even sharing it with you because I'm not proud of it. Um, I never wanted to just share stories that I am not proud of just to, like, oh, look how I was as a middle school kid because I wasn't, like, a bad kid. But, anyway, I'm just going to get on with it. <laughs> so, um, I was in gym class. And I remember this kid who was good at sports, okay? You guys know those kind of kids, just kind of naturally athletic. Um, I, again, I don't know why I said this, but I told someone else as we're changing out, like, you know, you get to go in the locker room, change into your sweaty gym clothes that you that could stand up on their own, you know, that kind of, um, well, we're changing, we're getting ready for, for class. And I just randomly told this kid, I could beat that kid up. And, and, yeah, so I'm like, I could, I could totally just beat that kid up. And I'm, okay, I'm not a big guy. In present state, I'm not a big guy. Sixth grade Adam certainly wasn't a big guy. And I don't know why I thought I had to, like, tell this kid. He, he didn't ask me, hey, you, you beat that kid up? Oh, yeah, totally. It was like, hey, uh, stop what you're doing. I need to tell you this. I could beat that kid up, you know? And it was like, why did I do that? Because this kid happened to be bros with said kid. And it was like, oh, well, crap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and again, we had to go through all gym class because guess what the next words out of this kid's mouth were, the minute, basically, that's the message title, is bet, okay? Um, I leave the locker room. Uh, this kid that I told who I thought was my friend, we're not friends anymore, we haven't talked since. Um, so, um, he, told, he told this guy, yo, 
Hey, Jeremy, Adam said just a second ago that he could beat you up. <laughs> and so who kept their distance from Jeremy the entire day? Yeah. This guy. <laughs> I was like, I'm not, hey, hey, I, I'm cool. I'm, you cool? <laughs> so, but it was like I was scared out of my mind because Jeremy was like, prove it. <laughs> All right? Uh, that was, that was a slang for bet. Um, back when I was in school, it was prove it. Um, but man, it was like, if, long story short, I did not get beat up that day. I avoided him like the plague, like Corona. I did not touch him or get close to him. Um, I did not beat him up. He did not beat me up. And uh, yeah, there's that. But it was like this weird moment where I made a statement to which Jeremy was like, prove it. I want you to prove it. And I think uh, a lot of us in this room maybe, and even on Sundays, we profess that we know Christ. And the world is looking at the church, like the big C church, and saying, prove it. I want you to prove it. How do we do that? How do we prove it? Because um, I think the world's thirsty for it. You know, I think the world is wanting the church to stand up and step out in courage. In a lot of ways, the Bible's telling us to. I think the world is wanting the church to be faithful to what God's called us to. And the world is basically looking at us, the church, and saying, I want you to prove it. And I think John addresses something in this letter, specifically in chapter 3, verse 11, that he is wanting the church to prove. I want you to get behind this. Like John is wanting us to put the, our money where our mouth is, essentially. I want you to prove it. So I want you to turn chapter 3, verse 11. That's where we're going to be the remainder of our passage. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then... I'm going to pray for us. We're going to dive deep. Deal? Cool. Bet. All right, here we go. Verse 11, it says this. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Verse 16, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Let me pray for us. Oh, oh God, um, this uh, is an incredibly challenging passage, God, that calls us to not just love what we do, but also to love what we do. 
hurt in this room. God, there is um, so much brokenness. And God, sometimes the last thing on our radar is to love. And so, God, would you give us um, the courage and the boldness, God, to live a life of love? And God, in your word, may you just reveal to us the truths that we need to pull out of this passage and help us apply it, God, to our everyday life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're just going to trek through this passage here. Verse 11, John says this, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should what? We should love one another. Yeah, this isn't, he's basically saying this is not new to you guys. This has been uh, the, the, the charge from the beginning that we should love one another. And he says this, this is intriguing. He says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, I think this is super fascinating. John uses an example of something that you wouldn't necessarily see this as an example of love, right? He uses the opposite. He uses a contrast. Like, this is not the example of love, but rather an example of what? Hate. Yeah. So, um, John is using an example in Scripture from Cain and Abel. How many of you guys have heard of the story of Cain and Abel? What essentially happens? Cain and Abel. <laughs> kills Abel. And who, what is their relationship? They're brothers. Yeah, they are in the same family. And one of them kills the other, murders him, his own family member. This is fascinating. John is driving home the idea, because who is John talking to? Brothers and sisters, the church, the same family. John's using this family example. He's using the opposite of what we ought to be doing. John is using a family example of a family that actually killed one another. But he's saying, you guys, you guys are family, you're brothers and sisters. Unlike Cain, he was of the evil one. He was a, like he was a son of the evil one murdered his brother and he murdered him because he was evil and his brothers were righteous verse 13 do not be surprised brothers and sisters if the world hates you he's saying this shouldn't be a shocker guys the world does not have what we have the world will hate what you behold bank on this happening verse 14 we know that we have passed from death to life because we Love our brothers or and sisters. The one who does not love remains in what? It's in verse 14. The one who does not love remains in what? Death. Yes, yeah. I'm not trying to trick you guys or anything. I want you guys to follow along with me because we're going to plot some really cool things here. The one who does not love remains in death. John is telling us that the evidence of your new life in Christ is actually in the love that you have for one another. Genuine love overflows. Genuine love overflows. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. 
man, John is getting in our business here, whether we know it or not. And he's using this example of a murderer. He's saying everyone who hates their brother or sister is a murderer. There's nothing new uh, here that John's telling us because this is actually some teachings that Jesus has taught us. Jesus has taught us this in the Sermon on the Mount. He has taught us that if you already have murder in your heart or if you already have hate in your heart, you have essentially murdered that person. Like this is something that Jesus has already taught us. He says, in fact, you can't possibly have the love of God in you if you hate someone because that hatred spews over towards your brothers and sisters. Like this is weighty stuff, guys. John is saying that love from Christ overrides the frustrations and differences you have with your church family. You ever had a disagreement with someone in the church? Just me? Okay. <laughs> so, um, you ever had a disagreement with someone in the church? You ever just felt like you were at odds? You butted heads? Um, John is saying, man, if you hate your brother or sister, meaning your brothers or sisters in the faith, if you hate them, you essentially have murder in your heart. Now, a vulnerable moment. I have broken every commandment except that one. <laughs> okay. I haven't murdered physically anyone. Okay, um, But John is telling us, though, and Jesus is telling us also in the Sermon on the Mount, that even if you hate someone, you have murder residing in your heart. Now, I'm going to share with you a quick story. I was reading about this passage, and this story struck me. This, this explained it so well, and basically, I'm just telling you this. I copied this down word for word because I want to read it to you guys because this helped me understand this so much better. Okay, So, <clears throat> a visitor at the zoo was chatting with the keeper of the lion house. I have a cat at home, said the visitor, and your lion acts just like my cat. Look at them sleeping so peacefully. It's a shame that you have to put those beautiful creatures behind bars. My friend, the keeper laughed, these may look like your cat, but their disposition is radically different. There's murder in their hearts. You'd better be glad the bars are there. The only reason some people have never actually murdered anyone are because of the bars that have been put up. The fear of arrest and shame, the penalties of the law, and the possibility of death. But we are going to be judged by the law of liberty. So the question is not so much what did you do, but the question is what did you want to do? What did you want to do? What would you have done if you had the, the liberty to do so as you had pleased? This is why Jesus equated hatred with murder and lust with adultery. Wow, that's fascinating. Like, the, we better be glad the bars are there because in our life, maybe we haven't murdered anyone because we knew of the consequences that would come. But what actually was residing in our hearts? And it started with hatred. The question is not so much what did you do, but what did you want to do? Now, hatred in the heart does not do the same amount of damage 
as you physically would if you actually murdered someone. Okay, we get that. But your sibling, your church family, or even your neighbor are glad that you don't take it out on them fully, what is residing in your heart. Okay? Um, but in God's sight, hatred is the moral equivalent to murder, and if left unchecked, can lead to murder. When you've been made new in Christ, meaning you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and God, you've made the jump from death to life. And the proof of that, the fruit, is that you live a life of love for your brothers and sisters. See, the love that you have, the love that you claim to have, the world is looking at you and saying, I want you to prove it. And how do we prove it? The fruit of that overflow, that the, the fruit of the words coming out of your mouth, like the genuineness, like say, I align my life with Christ, yet you hate your brothers or sisters. What is residing in your heart? What's residing in your heart? The proof of a life that is aligned with Christ, the fruit of that is a life of love. Not saying you're never going to have a disagreement. Never, uh, not saying that you'll never have a conflict, because that is certainly not the case. But the overflow of your heart will be that of love and not hatred. John is telling us, man, we need to live a life of love. So he says this in verse 16. Follow along with me. because this, this is a big verse right here too. This is how we have come to know love. He, who's he? Jesus. We did it, guys. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for who? Our brothers and sisters. Again, an echo from Jesus' teachings, John, John 15. Even more than that, we all know John 3, 16, right? Go ahead, Tyler. Say it. Yeah, say, you already did it. I forgot all the rest. No, you didn't, Tyler. Yes, you did it. Yeah, this is very good. But do we know 1 John 3.16? Check this out. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John 3.16 is a demonstration of love, and 1 John 3.16 is an explanation of love. How cool is that? John 3.16 says that God gave his son for us. 1 John 3.16 says that we should give ourselves for others. Scripture's fascinating, guys. Little things like this, like, man, it can really just paint a picture so beautifully that in John 3.16, it's God's demonstration of love. And 1 John 3.16 is God's explanation of love. This is how we can do that. If you want to see love, Scripture tells us, look to the cross. If you want to show love, Scripture tells us, look to the cross. If you want to know love... Look to the cross. If you want to live love, look to the cross. 
we have the ultimate expression of love demonstrated fully and fully explained on the cross. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Picture this, guys. This is a weighty verse also. John is going hard here. He says, if you have the world's goods, if you are doing all right, if you're making it, and you see a fellow believer in need, but you withhold what? What's the verse say? But if you withhold compassion... If you withhold compassion, I mean, and, and just on a side note, like that is the one, that is the emotion that Scripture tells that Jesus felt the most. Like, and Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus felt compassion for that person. Like, if we see a fellow believer in need, and yet we choose to withhold compassion from them, John asked a very serious question. How does God's love reside in him? Because John just gave us the explanation of love, is that we lay down our life for others. Yet if we choose not to lay down our life for others, do we really have God's love in us? Are we really loving? Or does our heart spew hatred? What is the motive? Why... Why did we do nothing, you know? Have you ever had a moment where you saw a need and you purposefully didn't do anything about it? And not because, I'm not trying to say because you're a bad person. I, there's been times in my life where I certainly could have done something and I didn't and it was out of fear. Um, it was out of just, un, I was totally uncomfortable. I was out of my element. There's times where we ought to do something and, and we don't do it. We withhold compassion from a fellow believer. And I think it's interesting here that John doesn't say a friend because we can love our friends well. We can love our friends without even trying. But it's that person that maybe you're just like, you kind of bother me. You know? <laughs> like, can we just be honest? Like, mm, you wear way too much perfume. And that's just a, that's a churchy example, but it's like, man, what if there was someone that like is I know we're of the same family, like I know you have a relationship with the Lord, and I see you have a need, and I'm choosing to withhold compassion from you. Does God's love really reside in my heart? Then it's a sobering question. Don't look over this question without taking some inventory because if you see a fellow brother or sister in need and you choose to withhold compassion, we just, heard, we just said not too long ago that God's love overflows. And when things are overflowing, you can't do anything about it. But if we choose to withhold, I would venture to say that our love is not a godly love that's overflowing. I think it's more so a worldly love that is complacent. God's love overflows. It acts. It does. God's love cannot be quenched. 
is overflowing. Verse 18, he says this. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. He's saying, brothers and sisters, if you say you align with Christ, he goes as far to say, let us not, let's not use our words. Yeah, let's not use our words, but rather, let's use action and in truth. And I think that in truth part is very important. I want you to circle that part. If you have your own Bible, circle in truth because that is very, very important. It's actually quite pivotal. Have you ever been manipulated by someone that you trusted? If you haven't, you're blessed. I have been. I've been manipulated. Um, there was a friend in high school. And I say friend loosely. I had someone in high school that I trusted, um, that I befriended, and uh, essentially the friendship became unhealthy. And it was a reliance, it was exhausting, it was draining, it was manipulative. There was evil motive in the friendship. And that friend would claim, like, I, I love this person, I, I love Adam. But the actions towards that did not prove a love, but actually an evil motive of just selfishness. So he's saying, I want us to love, not in word and speech, but in action and in truth. When they use a manipulative tactic, or maybe you've used a manipulative tactic, you may say that you love, or that person may say, I've loved, but if it's not wrapped up in truth, it has false motive or evil motives. Love displays itself through action and is bound up in truth. So you say that you have the love of God inside of you? Prove it. Prove it. And how do we prove it? We prove it by what we do. Words are good. But we all know actions speak louder than words, right? So, let's not only say that we love, but let's demonstrate that we truly love. Jesus didn't just say to love, but he showed us love in the greatest way of we could ever possibly know the greatest extent of love was demonstrated on a cross that Jesus bore and died a death that we didn't have to die he did it through the cross boring our sin dying in our place that kind of love can translate though you may think well I'm not going to die on a cross for my friends it's crazy Adam like it's 2020 get a grip like I get it but that love can translate though the love of Jesus on the cross can absolutely translate to 2020. We need to look to the cross. Jesus certainly did not have to die. Jesus 
in the godly love that overflows, acted. He demonstrated love by, by living the perfectly obedient life. He didn't live for himself. I, you know, Scripture does not say if Jesus was a good carpenter or not. I'd like to think he was. You know, like he was, I, I'd like to think that he was a good carpenter. He could have made a, a great living um, doing what maybe he enjoyed doing. He didn't live for himself, though. He invested in people. He knew people mattered. He lived a life of love, and it overflowed into every area of his life. That love can translate. That love can prove that, you're, that you align with Christ, that my love is not in just building my kingdom, but my love that God has given me overflows into every area of my life. And I don't live for myself, but there's a love that speaks so much louder than words, and it's a godly love, and the world is thirsty for it, and the world is looking to the church and saying, I want you to prove it. And we do it by dying to ourself, and when we die to ourself, we are making that jump from death to life, where there's a new life, there's a new you, and a godly love will overflow into every area of our life. We just need to look to the cross, where the greatest demonstration of love that humanity's ever known. And it was done through the person of Jesus. So, let me pray for us. Um, and then we'll give you time in your small groups to digest this. God, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, for your, uh, your example here on earth. Jesus, your demonstration of love on the cross. And God, your love that overflows. God, there are just people that in, in our life that we know has a peculiar hope and love that resides within them. God, may you give us practical examples for how the love of Jesus translate into a love here in 2020. God, bless the times that we have in our small groups. God, would you just continue to stir in our hearts and in our affections, God, for you. God, bless the conversations that we have tonight, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 All right, you're dismissed to your small groups.